Welcome to the Control Alt Azure podcast. I'm Yusip. And I'm Tobias. Join us for a journey in the cloud. Welcome to another episode of Control Alt Azure. We're here again, me and Yusi. What's up? Life is good. I've done a couple of keynotes recently, and it's been interesting. I've, I've done uh, plenty of keynotes, but I've done a lot of the usual breakout sessions at conferences and events and, and webcasts and whatnot. And the, the thing I've realized with keynotes, it's a bit same if you do golf or if you do mini golf. Uh, even though you kind of have the same equipment, it's still a totally different thing. And I've learned a lot on doing those keynotes. And, and one of the key takeaways for me has been that the keynote should be fun. Not like a comedy show, though, but more like it should be lighthearted. There should be some, some stuff in it that makes people think. But at the same time, it should be fun and fast moving so that everybody has the patience to follow through and if it's at the end of the conference, that's even more challenging. It's like a closing keynote. And if it's in the morning, it's challenging as well because people haven't had enough coffee yet. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, I never did a keynote, uh, which I'm pretty happy about uh, on, <laughs> on one end. But, you know, there's always different challenges to, to different types of uh, speaking engagements. Um, on my end, it's not about being at conferences right now, I am actually contemplating whether I should move to Italy again or not. Yeah, so, I would move to Italy for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because now I just look outside, it's entirely gray and it's, you know, no fun. And maybe I'll survive the winter just another year again in Sweden, as I always do. But we're talking with the family about going to Italy for maybe half a year or so, staying there. We'll see what comes out of that. Uh, but it would be would be pretty cool to do that right now because um, my kid is not old enough to be in school and that means we can pretty much work from wherever we want and that would be ideal and I mean the coffee and the pizza and the pasta and the pesto and and the I don't red even, wine and the yeah and, and that <laughs> <laughs> I mean there there's a lot of things weighing up for why we should go there so yeah we'll see yeah, are you thinking northern Italy, southern Italy, or something in between? Yeah, no, in northern Italy because uh, we have our offices also in in Munich in southern Germany. So taking the car then from Italy to the office would be ideal. Only a few oh, yeah. hours drive. Uh, and northern Italy is where they make the Amarone in the Valpolicella region. Oh yeah. And obviously that's where I usually hang out when I'm in Italy. So we jump around on the different vineyards and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, definitely Northern Italy. Uh, if it's over the summer, we might go down for a week to, you know, Southern parts, but it's, it's hot enough in, in the Northern parts of Italy, if you're coming from Sweden. So that's a, that's a great idea. Uh, I've kind of played with the idea that, yeah, should we go to Italy or Spain sometime in the winter? Not this year, maybe next year, but it's always kind of next year because there's always so much stuff you need to do at home. But that's definitely something, something comes up, huh? <laughs> yeah, something comes up. Yeah, we need to do Christmas thing. And, and then, then there's this in February and all of that. And then when spring starts, you kind of enjoy that you get more sun, even though you would get plenty more sun in Italy. 
Right. You don't want to risk it. Like the sun is finally coming in out. It's like, I'm not risking it. The sun is right there. I need to take it yes. right now. <laughs> yeah. Even though it's, it's physically the same sun, it feels different. Yeah. Um, one more other thing that I've been up to lately, uh, Minecraft Earth, meaning the, the Minecraft game, which is a bit like Pokemon Go on, on your mobile device, that is out now for early access. So I signed up, I think, six months ago that, yeah, I really need to get this. And a few days ago, I got an email that, okay, it's available now for early access. I don't know what it means because anybody can enroll and just start playing it. And what's interesting about it is that it's using Azure's Patil spatial, spatial anchors, mm -hmm. uh, which means that when you walk out and about, yesterday I was walking to the Microsoft office here in Finland, and I can take the metro, and I think it's like a 600-meter walk from there. I fire up the game because it requires GPS, so you cannot use it in the metro. And I'm walking, and it's showing me there's a chicken over there. Would you like to hit the chicken? Or, or would sure. you like to hit the chicken? <laughs> what would be more fun? So yeah. I start hitting my phone, and, and, and I hack and slash the chicken. No blood, though. And I receive something like a feather. And I don't see other players yet because it's early access and, and I feel I'm the only one playing it for now. But it's interesting because if I start building something, crafting something, it will be visible in that virtual world for other players in the future as well. So, I'm, I mean, I've waited a long time for my phone to send me notifications saying there's a chicken, now go slash. <laughs> <laughs> now it's available. Now, now it's there. Thank you, Mark Schott. Oh yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. That sounds interesting in the sense that I, I can see a lot of use and a lot of fun for that because it's like you say, Pokemon Go, it's a bit interactive. I'm not much for playing games myself, um, but I could see the value of something like that because it can also be pretty creative. Uh, I remember when Minecraft was launched way back when someone one showed that to me in the early days and I just laughed like, this is how would you consider this to be you know creative or a, a fun game at all but obviously i was the odd chicken there because everyone else embraced it and like you can do whatever you want and you can build boxes and i could not see the value of that <laughs> yeah but w what are those boxes for who cares it's you just build whatever you want i'm like yeah i okay nope <laughs> and then you know it's this multi-billion dollar game so I don't, I don't really have, I don't really have time to play anything. I think the last time I really played about some, played something was, was more than 10 years ago. That was before kids and, and all the family obligations. Uh, but what I did though, I think it was um, maybe six months ago, I needed to do an assignment for school and it was about uh, data analytics. And the, the assignment said that, please feel free to be creative. So what I did is that I fired up Minecraft on my own server that I ran through a Docker container. And, and what I did, I used the built-in scripting language that Minecraft has to generate data within the virtual world. And then I recorded this sort of walkthrough of my data and, and how I analyzed that data. And it, it took me about half day to design and, and do the recording and put music and everything in there. I submitted that to my professor and I was super happy. I got the highest <laughs> marks. And I think it had to do with Minecraft, not my amazing skills in building stuff in Minecraft. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty clever though. Um, 
All right. So today we're talking about how do I get started with Azure development? And this is a, I mean, I think we can talk for days on end about this topic, but you know, let's start from scratch because this is a question both of us has been, been getting, you know, over the years, why do I need Azure or what is the cloud? How do I develop for the cloud? Because uh, some people that I talk to and I, I've done a lot of trainings in the past to a lot of people and, and some of those people still reach out and ask questions about various things. They want to go further in their career or, you know, go into the cloud because they've been working on non-cloud workloads for many years and maybe web development for the cloud. And one question that keeps coming up is, you know, why, where do I even start? Cause I've, I built.net. So I know that part and I build websites. So I know that part, I know IIS, I know servers. But every time I look into the cloud, all I see is microservices, functions, or lambdas, and containers, and microprocessing, and all this stuff. You know, what is the what is the cloud if you're a developer? So, from let me ask you that question. As a developer coming from a non non cloud workloads, and you're looking into the cloud uh, for whatever reason, maybe your business said that we'll save some money offloading all the hardware going just into the Microsoft Azure cloud. Where do you start? What's the, what's the go-to plan to learn more? That's a great question. I think we can come up with 27 different answers and they would all technically be correct. So how I often approach this sort of question, how do I get started for developing solutions in the cloud? It of course depends on, on what you need to create. If, if today you're creating server-side backend solutions with whatever programming language, you can keep on doing those even in the cloud. So that would possibly be a virtual machine that runs your code, or you could create this sort of cloud-native solution. No VMs, something a bit more modern. And how I approach this very similar question back in the day when I started doing solutions for Azure, I used to do a lot of custom development for local data centers. I would have customers, they would say, okay, we need this and this sort of solution for our business needs, please create something. And, and far back in the day in the nineties, it would be Visual Basic 6 or C++ or classic ASP. Then we got .NET, so oftentimes me and the other developers, we would just resort to creating whatever we could with .NET Framework. So now moving to the cloud, uh, the, the, the easiest way probably is to keep on using whatever tools you use now. And in the Microsoft platform, that typically includes Visual Studio or nowadays also Visual Studio Code. And for Visual Studio, which is still the IDE, the development environment that I use personally, mm -hmm. uh, I simply say, let's create X. So X for me might be a command line utility for testing out something, or it could be an API, or it could be a piece of code that runs uh, when it's triggered or when I schedule it to run. And that might be compiled as an executable or, or uh, an assembly, let's say a DLL file that some, something else will in, in turn call. So to get started, obviously you're going to need an Azure subscription. And once yep. you have that, typically your organization, your company might give you access to one. And that's the starting point. 
Yeah, and you, you can get an Azure subscription for free, right? For mm -hmm. a trial period. Yeah, you can get it for free uh, if you have access to the Microsoft Partner Network. You can get these uh, these uh, subscriptions that have a little bit of money in it, so you can run uh, lighter workloads during the month until you run out of money or until you put in your credit card or you you uh, prepay for your access in Azure. Yeah. And also what I like about like answering the question, where do I even start? A lot of people that, that I talk to, they come from, like I mentioned before, like a .NET background, whether this is .NET Core or the .NET framework doesn't really matter uh, because .NET runs as is in the cloud as well. You can run both .NET Framework and .NET Core. Um, if I were to recommend new projects, then obviously .NET Core, and you might even wanna look into .NET Core 3.1, which is soon to be released. Uh, with LTS or long time support. And, and that's also gonna be able to run in Azure seamlessly. Uh, but there's also the other type of like non.NET Core or .NET developers. There's no developers, JavaScript developers, all this stuff. And that also just runs in Azure. So wherever you're coming from, you can run PHP workloads if you want that. So like whatever dev background you come from and you need to run something without hosting that yourself, Azure has that capability in some sense. Um, speaking of tools, you touched a bit on Visual Studio, which is also my main go-to tool because I have a, um, a set of plugins that I use or extensions that I use, um, but I also like to structure my solutions that can be pretty complex for uh, some bigger enterprise workloads. Um, but for the, the smaller projects, I also use Visual Studio Code and Microsoft at Ignite also announced Visual uh, Studio Code online. So you actually get source control, your IDE or the developer environment, which is Visual Studio Code hosted online. You get access to the DevOps and everything hosted in your browser. So you can actually have a fully capable development environment in your browser. So you don't even need to download a tool. You wanna try something out, writing a, an Azure function, try out how that works and try running that in the cloud you can do that from your browser. And in the past, I was very uh, hesitant or negative about experiences using my browser for any type of scripting or development because you know you accidentally hit F5 or the browser crashed because it did happen. Yeah. Nowadays, I never see that happen. I use Firefox, I use the latest Edge. I try this out in different browsers and so far the experience is pretty good. Um, what I like about that is you can pick this up from wherever you are. So you don't need to prepare your machine for these crazy workloads and download a five gigabyte tool set. You can just go to the, to the website and say, you know what, I need to try out a new project, but that's it. So that's exactly. pretty cool. Uh, oftentimes I still meet with developers and, and they are lugging with them this, uh, this huge Lenovo ThinkPad laptop with, with 64 gigs of RAM and, and two oh, terabytes. The good old days, huh? The good old days. And they have this huge uh, charger, a brick that, that, that weighs <laughs> yeah, as, as the much as the laptop. Of, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and and they, they sit down in a meeting, in a meeting room, and they go, okay, where's the, where's the electricity socket? Because my battery lasts for 15 minutes only. Then mm -hmm. they fire it up. They have VMware or Hyper-V. They're running like 17 different VMs, and, and the whole setup is there. And that's still fine. You can still continue doing that. 
but what I realized uh, years ago is that I'm I'm super efficient with with this this lightweight laptop, and some people call it the the, the sales person laptop. Mm. That it's it, it's it's also almost like an ultrabook. So it has eight or sixteen gigs of RAM, normal display, normal SSD, nothing fancy in it, and you can still do the development bits locally but you don't need those 17 vms anymore you can have those vms in azure or in a real server in your data center or you you code your solution you try it out locally but then you publish or deploy that to azure and that's where you get all the rest of the assets you need right and you can also use azure to set up a virtual machine for the development so even if you can do development from your thin small laptop that does not require a lot and all the the code runs in azure you can also set up a vm so if you do require heavy dev workloads to be installed you can actually offload all of that to the cloud in a vm that you can then access using rdp yeah exactly so yeah. so we kind of touched on the tools visual studio 2019 that's the latest one and visual studio code as well as visual studio is it Visual Studio Code online or Visual Studio online? I think it's Visual Studio Code online, but I'm not entirely sure right now. Yeah, because VSO, Visual Studio Online, used to be the name of Azure DevOps. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's Visual Studio Code online. Yeah. Because um, Visual Studio Online, yeah, you're right. That was what is now Azure DevOps. That was Visual Studio Online. And then it was Visual Studio Team Services, um, which is now then Azure DevOps, yeah. Yeah, and before that, it was Team Foundation Services, and before that, it was uh, Visual Studio Source Safe. And oh yeah, oh and man! Now you're talking about huge VMs and running a huge laptop the size of a brick, and and running Source Safe. I mean, this brings back memories. I'm not gonna say it's great memories. <laughs> I'm just saying it's memories. <laughs> <But> memories. Yeah. <laughs> so so when you when you code when you when you develop solutions for Azure. Uh, for you, is it is it like you 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 work from home? So so you work in, in, in your home office. You sit down. You you fire up your laptop or your or your PC, your workstation PC. Is it so that you run Visual Studio and you start coding and you do eight hours of of code? You end up with five thousand lines of C sharp or JavaScript. Then you hit F five. Yeah, it runs. You right click, publish. It's in the cloud and you're done for the day. <laughs> yes, success. <laughs> no, so, I mean, it's today the landscape is, at least for me, I, I don't work exclusively as a developer. I do a lot of solution architecture. I do a, a lot of proof of concepts and, and things around development in the cloud, but I don't exclusively work on just development tasks. Um, so that's a, that question will get a different answer depending on who you ask it to. So for me... I boot my laptop up, but we have a lot of collaboration going on. So we talk with colleagues and we figure out what we need to do. When we have a decision on what needs to get done, you don't have to fire things up in the cloud as such. You can develop on your local machine without any problems. You can hit F5 and you can even emulate what's in the cloud if you use, for example, Azure Storage Account as a database for the data you want to have hosted in the cloud. You can even emulate that to run on your local machine. Um, so you don't really have to think about building, 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 and then when you test it out, you have to test it in the cloud because you can test it also on your own machine. And I think this is also an important thing to, to remember that what we see often is people develop and develop and they hit a five and they try it out and they right click and publish and wow, it works. 
but what you should always do is write the tests first, right? So, you know, there's test-driven development and all these legacy things, but, you know, somewhere you have to draw the line and, and find a balance of what works for you. Um, from my end, what I usually do is I, I want to cover with tests what I want to implement. So if I have a requirement coming in, I can write the test first, then I execute all the tests and they will fail. And that's by design. And in Visual Studio, uh, I also use something, I think it's called live unit testing. So I enable that and as I write my code, the unit test will start becoming green when the code I implement works. So I don't have to run over to the cloud and test things all the time because I have unit tests and I can also have integration tests with live unit testing. And I do that you know, for, for both my spare time projects, but also when I implement workloads for where I work. And I really like that, that as soon as you type, it's gonna light up and say, nope, still doesn't work, does not work, now it works. So as long as you've write your tests first, then you will have a fairly good stance in knowing that whatever you just built, when you shoot that off, and you do your real tests in the cloud, then it's gonna uh, come out better on the other side. Um, so again, there, I mean, there's a lot of responses you can get to that question, depending on who you ask. If you ask someone who is a full-time developer, yeah, maybe you just open your laptop, you have a backlog, you go pick an item, and then you hammer off. When you're done, you're done. But you don't shoot it off to the cloud, or you shouldn't shoot it off to the cloud. What you should really do is use Azure DevOps if you are on the Microsoft stack. If you're on, on GitHub, then you use GitHub. Use some kind of source control software. You get the sources committed and synced back, preferably in separate branches. Uh, and what, why you want to do that is because then you as a developer do not have to do any integrations to the cloud. You don't have to ensure that whatever you built today will work because that will happen on the build server. So with Azure DevOps, the way I like to do it is whatever changes you do, you do that in a separate branch. So if you have a development branch, you take a new branch off of that branch and you say, this is my Tobias branch. I'm doing feature one, two, three here. And you do your work and then you commit that and sync back and you submit a PR or a pull request. Now in Azure DevOps, you can then configure policies. So when not, whenever someone says they have a pull request saying that they're branch that they have developed now with feature one, two, three should be merged back into the code base of the developer branch. Now, in order to, for that to happen, you can add branch policies. So you can have a credential scanner ensuring that the developer did not put any plain text credentials in the code, because obviously that's not a good thing. That could run automatically. You can also have build and unit test run automatically on everything that you submit as a PR. You could have multiple builds automatically run. So nobody has to be involved. You don't have to test everything yourself. You don't have to call the Q&A team. You just commit the code, submit a PR, and Azure DevOps handles the rest on the DevOps side. And you're gonna get an email saying, you know what, this failed because this and that, or you implemented um, code that is not covered by unit test, because you can also report on uh, code coverage and test coverage. So if the cover drops, meaning that you develop new code, but you did not write any unit tests for it, then the DevOps can say this fails because you need to cover your code with tests. So you can have all these things done automatically. And if you're not in the cloud today as a developer and you're moving into the cloud, 
you might already do this. You have, like you said, TFS and the latest incarnation of that has also support for all these things. So you can, you know, bring the knowledge of your entire CI, CD pipeline kind of stuff and, and how you do DevOps from your on-prem environment. You can bring that knowledge up into the cloud in no time. It's just, it's so simple. You just create your DevOps account and then it's very intuitive how to get started from there. So, so that's another angle on that answer. The, the Azure DevOps angle is super interesting. And, and often when I create my own proof of concepts or, or need to try out something, I need to build something, it might not be something that inherently goes to a customer's production environment. It's more of a, let's see how we should build this. And then we actually have a team building it based on that proof of concept. So for me, I'm super lazy on, on creating any, any test uh, cases or, or anything to automatically test to begin with. I can do that later. And I always feel that I need to get coding. I need to understand what should I do. And that kind of uh, also steers my, my way on what programming language I'm choosing and what's the platform. So the platform is Azure but it might be that I need to create a couple of Azure functions to have this serverless approach. I might need a logic app, but I also might need to create a custom API that, that then is hosted in a web app or in a container. And all of those might be built in different languages, or I might use C Sharp, which is the obvious choice for me. But if, for example, the Azure function is going to be rather simple, I often use PowerShell or JavaScript because I feel it's a bit more lightweight. It's a bit more easier for others to edit and test later on as well. Yeah. So integrating Azure DevOps to all of this uh, through Visual Studio, it makes perfect sense. And, and as you said, Azure DevOps is simple to get started with, and there's a lot of options and choices in there. But I also realized that, that there's so much flexibility in Azure DevOps that you can also get lost in all of that if you try to build it too fancy, too enterprise to begin with. Yeah, and it's a good point because it's, it's like you say, like you said in the beginning, it, it depends on the purpose, right? It's not, there's no black and white saying that if you're a developer, you need to do this way. You need to have branched policies with PRs and approvals. You don't need all that if you're writing a proof of concept that is used only by you, and then you hand this over and say, this is kind of the pseudocode or the code that we need to try and implement, and this is the kind of architecture. If you then hand that over to whoever is responsible for implementing that, then they will do all those things. So that's okay. Uh, so it all comes down to, you know, in, in the past as a consultant, the most common answer you had to any question was, it depends, Yeah. right? Because you often got a, a very specific question, but you didn't know any of the variables. So how much it gonna cost me to move to the cloud? Well, it depends. Why do you want to move? Is it data or is it code or is it, you know, it depends. And the same applies here. All these things, you can use DevOps, you can have a super structured development and architectural approach and follow all these routines and, and playbooks. But if it's only for you building a proof of concept, then that makes no sense. Then it's more important to just get that stuff working, test it out, verify, okay, this is a use case that we have and I have fulfilled the theory of that use case by using this pilot. Here you go guys, this is how it works, this is why it works, this is how you can set it up. And then these guys will figure out the details of getting that properly tested. 
Um, and you so know, for uh, for the um, for the cost aspect, that's interesting that you uh, touched that a bit on. Uh, how much does it cost to develop solutions on Azure? I often find that whenever I'm doing cloud native, uh, obviously it's going to cost me when I run it in production, and it depends on at at, at what scale I want to run it. But when I get started, the Azure functions, the custom APIs, storage, uh, data solutions, they, I'm thinking, should I say they are relatively cheap, but I'd, I'd more rather say they are affordable because you typically pay for what you use. So the less you use, the less you pay, as opposed to a VM, you fire up the VM, uh, you select a certain performance class with certain features and then you have this sort of fixed cost or majority of the cost will be fixed and yep. if you shut it down obviously the cost will go close to zero you're still paying for certain stuff on that like storage that you're consuming with the vm mm -hmm. image but yep. obviously your solution is not running anymore if the vm is, is is shut down so when you when you do these cloud native solutions uh it's hard to estimate what the exact cost is going to be, but you can easily uh, find out the, uh, the rough budget and the sort of trend line that, okay, we are seeing it will cost us 20 euro per month now, but if we need to scale it, it will be 35 euro. And that's roughly the, the level that we're willing to pay for this solution. Yeah. And, and it's a good question around cost because there's this misconception of going to the clouds. Cloud is pretty much free, or you can do pretty much replace all your hardware, all your servers, everything go to the cloud, and it's going to be so much cheaper. And if you do it right, it's going to be cheaper, right? But it, it all, again, it depends. Like you say, if you use a VM, that's going to be a fixed price for when it runs. Then you can schedule that to always turn off in the evening. So it always automatically shuts down at 8 o'clock or 6 o'clock or whatever you want. So that will also save you some cost, but not everything in the cloud is pay as you go in terms of, uh, or pay for consumption really. Uh, so for app services, which is where you host your web applications, there you usually pay for an app service plan. And that's also a fixed price per month. And you can run a certain amount of instances of web applications under that app service plan, but the pricing of that plan will be fixed. And it will say, this is going to cost you 60 bucks per month or 200 or 500, or depending on what kind of level or tier you want to put that on. And you also touched on development versus production environments. And as soon as you go into production, the cost is not going to be what you had in, in dev. Because in dev, you might not want networking or firewalls or security. But as soon as you go into production, you need that. And if you use the built-in firewall protection that is in Azure for Azure Web Application Firewall. It comes with OWASP top 10 threat detection and uh, you know, all these kind of things that's built in. But in order to utilize that and in order to util utilize virtual networks and network security groups and being able to tie that to your app service, you need to be, I think it is on at least standard one level. Yeah. Uh, for some features, it might even require premium, but standard one, I believe, is the, the minimum for using any type of virtual networks and firewalling. So as soon as you go into production, you don't do that on a dev plan. You need to scale that up. But again, if you go into production and you stay on standard one, and that's 60 bucks a month or whatever it is, I'm just making up that number, but it's, it's not a big number. 
that's still relatively cheap for a production workload to run 24 seven without you having any hardware, no maintenance. Obviously there's the software maintenance, your code need to be maintained. You need to implement a monitoring solution and all these things, but that's also built into the cloud. So as soon as you set that up, you can also say connect application insights and here's my Azure monitor, create me some alerts. Whenever something happens, you'll know about it. And you don't have to spend all that time setting that up in your data center. So there's costs involved, but by my experience, the cost is less if you go cloud and you can also decide where to spend. So if you go into production and you have something that is super important to have running full time, then you can scale that up, you can scale it out. So multiple instances and a bigger plan with, with bigger hardware on the Azure side. I think with the cloud native approach, uh, let's say you plan creating a website, so you will provision a web app, you run your custom code in there, you might have a separate web app for your APIs and a couple of Azure functions, maybe some backend logic uh, orchestrated with logic apps or, or uh, message queuing to service bus or storage queues. Uh, you see, you, you, you get this transparency on how the cost starts tallying up and, mm. and you can see, okay, I'm paying nine cents a month for this sort of alert that's monitoring all of this. But when you uh, deploy everything in a VM, you see, okay, the VM will cost me $200 and that's it. Regardless of what I do within the VM, the mm -hmm. cost will roughly be the same. So it's a bit the same if you pay a subscription fee, let's say for Spotify or Netflix or something that you use semi-regularly. You might listen to Spotify every day or you might spend a week not really using it but you pay about $10 or $15 for it. And it feels cheap in the sense. But when you start figuring out, okay, I'm spending maybe 20 minutes on this a month, but I'm still paying $10, it becomes a bit more expensive in your mind. And the same kind of applies with VMs. You pay this fixed fee. And, and once you run out of those resources, the only way for you is to either multiply those VMs or scale one VM up, and then your cost will go up. Yep. as opposed to optimizing something a bit in your cloud native solution and seeing, okay, it will cost me $2 more now, but everything still runs relatively cheap. Yep. And there's also, so I, I touched a bit on uh, an app service plan, which is the kind of fixed price, like the VMs you just talked about. There's also the consumption-based plans. And this is really where, um, like you mentioned, it's going to cost you nine cents for this type of alerting for that type of solution. And, the same can, you can actually run a website entirely on consumption. If you don't run it in an app service plan, you can run um, um, a website only with client side code. And that could call the APIs as Azure functions running on consumption. So then you only pay for the calls you make. And I think you get the first million calls for free per month or something like that. Uh, so it does not have to be expensive to run uh, any type of workload. It, it's all depending on how you want to design that. And I also recently saw someone who built a static host uh, or static hosted website um, that they generate and host in an Azure storage account. They connect CDN to that. So it's super, super quick. Like there's no thinking on the back end. It's just the data is, and the content is already there and generated. When you request it, it's a millisecond. I mean, it's so quick, it's ridiculous. And when that site needs to make some kind of client side call, they're 
there's embedded scripts just calling an Azure function. And that's also consumption plan. So the price for that, I think, went up to $1.50 per month for running a 24-7 available website. Uh, so depending on how, how you scale things and how you build things and you know, what kind of workload it is, you can, you can get off cheap. But the same thing, if it is consumption and you do get a lot, a lot of data and you get a lot of requests. So, so I've built a lot of like queue-based systems. You have this asynchronous development or asynchronous processing really where I have a lot of workers, functions, containers working on analyzing data. And in order to do that, we need to scale out and scale up. And so we can have 50 containers and functions working at the same time processing a queue just to hammer on. And if this is based on the consumption pricing, the, the price can go up because I did not you know, stay within the 1 million uh, items being processed. We're talking two, three, four, five hundred million 500 million items. Uh, so quite a lot of data being processed. And then you can see the, the cost a bit ticking up but it's still not expensive. Like you can do things at huge scale and it's still gonna be affordable. Um, and to touch on that, my recommendation is because we can talk about this all day and there's so many ifs and buts and if you do it like this and if you do it like that, but the Azure pricing calculator is good. And it has saved my butt many times when I had no idea how to kind of estimate what the cost would be for, for designing a solution this way or that way. So the, uh, we'll put that in the show notes. The, the Azure calculator or Azure pricing calculator is actually a very good tool to estimate the cost of whatever workload you try to implement. Definitely. So after all these years, uh, when you've developed solutions for Azure as well as back in the day more for on-prem, what's, what's kind of the, Thing or the guidance you wish you'd had known years ago when you started building enterprise-grade solutions, that if I only knew this, life would have been so much easier? You know, that's, that's a great question. And I think it's a very difficult question to answer because what I know today about the cloud did not exist five years ago even. So even if I had the knowledge I had today and I go back five years, I could not implement it because that did not exist. Uh, so it's, it's difficult from that sense. Um, one thing I, for, for personally for me, and this is highly personal and, and highly subjective, it's, you know, I would not focus on trying to learn all the client side development that comes out because bam, now it's React. Half a year later, everyone moves to Angular. Half a year later, everyone moves to Vue js and then everyone moves back to react because that's better right now and you know all this craziness and i i try to tag along with that but honestly there's there's so many things going on so if, if i were to give myself a recommendation five years ago it would be you know figure out what you're what you want to do why you want to do that and what technology you, you want to kind of dive deeper into so i've stayed with .NET and .NET core and I work exclusively with C Sharp for many, many years. Still do that. And now with the introduction of Blazor for ASP.NET and ASP.NET Core, you can actually write super efficient client-side code from C Sharp. So that's super cool. Um, so I think it's a very tricky 
question to answer because the te technologies we have today did not exist if I were to give myself advice a couple of years back. Uh, what about you? If you, like going back five years or a couple of years, what would, what would you tell yourself? Uh, probably what I would tell myself is just get started building your solutions and, and don't stress that much about how am I eventually going to operate this or what all technologies will I need to learn in, in order to get this up and running because there's always something better. There's always something I can optimize a bit further. And, and for me, I think the lessons that I've learned in, in recent years is that have one central framework and language that you feel comfortable with and, and, and you get stuff done. And for me, that's also a .NET framework and C-sharp. But what I also find highly valuable is, is to know enough scripting so that I can automate things. I can mm -hmm. build smaller things without always compiling my code. So for the longest of times, it, for me, it was PowerShell. And before this, it was all the scripting capabilities on a, on a Linux shell. These days, I think it's, it's Azure CLI, which, which obviously is uh, more of a Linux shell with Bash, but it's also a bit of PowerShell. And sometimes I still resort to plain old bat files or, or, or CMD files just to quickly call on something that, yep. that should, that's easier to call from a native command prompt in Windows than resorting to something that's not native. So yep. for me, it's probably C sharp, learn enough of that, but you don't need to learn or, or know everything about it. Just be happy and comfortable with that and, and surround yourself with enough additional frameworks and languages so that you can, you can supplement the things you don't want to do in C-sharp. Yep, yeah, that makes sense. Um, so I think from my side, that's, that's it on this topic. I have so many things I want to talk about, but you know, we would not have time to do that even if we had a full week talking about it. Uh, I think we've covered yeah, the basics of what I wanted to cover. Is there anything else on your mind? So just quickly to recap, uh, Visual Studio 2019, uh, Visual Studio Code Online, let's put the links in the show notes as well. Getting started, choose a language, it can be C-sharp, it can be something else, it can be Python, PHP, PowerShell, what have you. Don't stress too much about what the execution engine will be in Azure. Is it going to be a VM running your code? Is it going to be logic apps, Azure functions? Is it going to be a web app? Is it going to be an API? Is it going to be something in a container? You'll figure that out typically during the process or when you do the design for your solution and you figure out what goes where. Yep. All right. And then, yeah, I think that pretty much covers it. And then, you know, to the, to the fun parts of this episode, the word of the day. So yes. a while back we introduced uh, learning a Swedish and a Finnish word of the day in every episode. So, you know, what's the Finnish word we need to learn today? So this is a fun one and, and it's rather easy. So the Finnish word is kassahihna lähetys. And, and in wow. Finnish, we don't really like using intonation. So it's just kassahihna lähetys. And <laughs> what it means, what it means is uh, it's actually three words. And what it means is that when you go to a grocery store and, and, and you get what you need, your milk and cookies and what have you, and you, you go to the cashier to pay, you put your stuff on the moving belts, 
uh, it's often this this uh, black belt that that moves so mm-hmm. that that your stuff moves to the cashier so that they can they can uh, register their purchases. Uh, so the kassahihna, that's the moving belts, and the lahetus bit. <laughs> of course it is. Yes, and the lahetus bit. That's a live TV broadcast, and it, they also stream that that uh, uh, through a web page. So every time uh, close to Christmas, there's going to be a 24-hour live broadcast from a select grocery store, and they point the camera on the moving belt to see what people are purchasing. They don't they don't show the people, so it's anonymous in the sense, and people can then follow up in real time what other people are buying. Wow. So you, ha- you have a word for streaming cashier purchases on a black rolling band. Yes. And it's wow. a relatively new thing. I think this is the third year. And often it's the most watched broadcast we have. It really? Probably, <laughs> yeah, it probably tells a lot that we don't have that much to, to see on the TV, but this is the great thing we have. Right. So if I ever come to Finland, then I'm going to say, Kassa Hitnaihlietis. Yes, and fluent. just ask for you know whenever it's holiday season. I'm just gonna say, however you say, I want to watch, I want to watch Kasahihnaleetis. Yeah, kind of like see the highlights from the past three years. Yeah, no, I actually want to see the 24-hour live stream, the full. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> so Swedish then. What's what's the word of the day? So the word of the day is Suströmings Premiere. And now this is a funny thing in Sweden. This is the first day of the year when it is acceptable to eat rotten herring. And wow. herring is uh, strömming and rotten uh, is sur. So together this is surströmming. And that's a kind of a foul smelling and fermented fish considered a delicacy in Sweden. Obviously not by me. Um, if you go on YouTube and you, you search for like Swedish surströmming, you will see a lot of people just pretty much throw up as soon as they open the can, because obviously it's a can of fermented rotten fish. So I, you know, I don't take pride in this being a Swedish national delicacy, but there you have it. So if you ever come to Sweden and you want rotten fish, you say, I want some Sustromings Premier. You want to go to the Sustromings Premier, which is the first day it's considered allowed to eat that. So the next time I go to a grocery store here in Finland, uh, I, w- I will try to find the moving belt, the kassahihna. And, and if they have this broadcast on, the lähetys on, I will go to the, uh, the canned foods aisle and pick up my premiere, get like five of those and put them on the moving belt and I'm set. Yes. And the best thing is if you open one of them in the moving belt. So that would be... <clears throat> you, yeah. you might not be the most popular person in the room, but it would be fun to see that on the live stream. Yeah, I think I, I will buy one can and just give it to somebody else as a Christmas present. <laughs> yeah, just remove the label so they don't know what's inside of it. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. I, I think that's it for this show. Yep, I think we covered uh, all the essentials in getting started with Azure Dev. Let's add a couple of links in the show notes. And until next time. See you then. Thank you for tuning in to the Control Alt Azure podcast. 
Find out more and read the show notes on controlaltasher.com. Stay tuned.